Welcome to Health or Consequences, the healthcare and public health podcast series under the podcast uh, label that we do in partnership with Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Paul Hattis from the Tufts School of Medicine, here with my partner, John McDonough of the T.H. Chan Harvard School of Public Health. Our guest today, and we welcome him, Dr. Stephen Strongwater of Atrius Health. Welcome, Dr. Strongwater. It's great to be here. Thank you. If you would, uh, get our uh, podcast going by sharing a little bit about your background as well as a brief overview of Atrius Healthcare, if you would. Sure. Uh, I am a research rheumatologist who came to Massachusetts uh, in the late 19, well, actually in the early 1980s and spent many years at UMass, got involved in medical administration and then moved around the country, mostly in the Northeast, running hospitals and physician practices, got involved in medical administration through an interest in performance and quality improvement and lean, and have been using those tools ever since, and actually wound up in central Pennsylvania in a place called Geisinger, uh, which is a kind of an interesting place in so many ways. A lot of what's in the Affordable Care Act came from the population health management programs at Geisinger, I was the chief transformation officer there when I got a phone call to have the opportunity to return to where our children were born and where uh, we know so well and so many people in Massachusetts uh, to come back and run Atrius Health. Uh, Atrius Health was, at the time, almost exactly the same size as the Geisinger Health System's ambulatory practice. Atrius Health, in fact, is the largest not-for-profit independent physician group in New England. We have about 715 physicians and another 400 or so non-physician providers uh, and about 740,000 patients. What's unique about Atrius Health and what's so interesting is that our reimbursement model is not the traditional physician practice reimbursement model, which is referred to as fee-for-service. Now, more than 80% of our revenue is reimbursed through a global capitation of one sort or another which means that we are directly aligned with our patients. We want to keep patients healthy and well and out of ERs and hospitals uh, to lower their out-of-pocket costs and to improve their outcomes, their patient experience, and their safety. Uh, And so I'm thrilled to be back here. It's a wonderful practice committed to transforming care to improve lives uh, and to providing the right care with kindness and compassion every day to every person we serve. So it's a pleasure to meet you, Dr. Strongwater. Um, I've been a patient at the Kenmore Center since 1976, and so I've seen so many transformations. Uh, uh, Atrius originally started as part of the Harvard Community Health Plan in the 1960s, the first real health maintenance organization, HMO, in greater Boston. And then in the mid-'90s, it became part of Harvard Pilgrim when they merged with Pilgrim Healthcare. And then the health centers broke off and became Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates. And then they expanded to become now what's known as Atrius. And so it's been a number of changes. And so one wonders, because there's so much transformation going on in the healthcare space in Massachusetts and all over the country. And there were reports in recent years that Atrius might be purchased by some large national healthcare organization. And instead, it looks like you've created a special relationship with Massachusetts Blue Cross. But where do you stand right now? And is this where you expect to stay for the foreseeable future? Or who the heck knows? 
John, it's a great recounting of our history. I, I should just add that Harvard Vanguard is one part of the practice. There are other important parts of the practice. We're a merged entity with Dedham Medical Associates, Granite Medical Group, uh, and Plymouth Medical Group, uh, PMG Associates, and very importantly, uh, VNA Care, which is the oldest and one of the largest VNAs in the, in the country, excuse me, in the Commonwealth, and the oldest in the country, VNA Boston. Um, so we have a very, very, we went through a very interesting journey to decide whether or not to remain independent. It's, it was hard to um, be in the Commonwealth without recognizing that there were some mergers going on. Uh, this is right around the time the Beth Israel Leahy Health uh, merger was underway. It's when Always Health was acquired by partners. Our board asked us to evaluate whether we should remain independent uh, or not. And uh, we went through a very extensive process looking both locally and nationally. And we went through uh, the kind of the usual suspect list. We looked at hospitals, other health systems, health plans, private equity, what we call the moonshot, you know, think Amazon, Google, those kinds of things. And we had a set of criteria to evaluate what made the most sense. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts really made a very interesting proposal that intrigued us because they understood that what drove us, for the most part, historically, is our staff model HMO roots, our commitment to managed care, to value-based care that centers around patients and, and their patient members and their families. Um, and so what they did, uh, very interestingly, was to take our existing fee-for-service members, they're in a PPO model of reimbursement, and converted them to a global budget. That global budget is very much like what we're used to for other managed care contracts. And beyond that, said to us, we want to create a special relationship that helps to improve the care for patients, remove the barriers and sand in the gears when people interact with the healthcare system, and be creative and co-create uh, between two nonprofit organizations, co-create a new future. So it's a seven-year agreement as opposed to what our traditional contracts are, which are two or three years. And we are co-collaborating to understand the patient journey, understand where there's waste, both for the health plan and the clinical delivery system. And we are taking full advantage of our population health models to work with patients to keep them healthier, use our analytic tools and our population health outreach managers. Uh, and, and eventually, we believe this is the right model of care for everyone. And that's because we believe in value-based care. What's been happening is employers have been purchasing PPO designs. It's the model that allows you to shift more cost to your employee by virtue of creating a more high deductible health plan. Um, but getting into value-based care is still the holy grail in our view, because in the long run, we're seeking to create better outcomes which cost less money. That helps employers lower their cost. It helps employees, because their out-of-pocket costs go down. And eventually, the plans can offer lower rates in the Commonwealth, which is ideally what the Health Policy Commission would like to see us all or, uh, achieve. So the reason it works for us is it allows us to uh, more effectively generate a little bit more margin, and that margin allows us to reinvest in our infrastructure, in our data tools, in our physical plant, whatever is necessary, and that allows us to remain independent. 
Steve, uh, appreciate very much you sort of giving us a strategic positioning and decision-making that you as an organization, uh, decisions you've made and have come to. I want to broaden it a little bit, though. From that, from that position that you're at of this independent nonprofit physician group, how do you think about the current commercial market for healthcare services in Massachusetts? How should our podcast listeners be thinking about that? Well, that is a really great question. I'd love to answer it in more than one way. The first part I would say is that we have been blessed by having three nonprofit, very creative health plans in the Commonwealth. That is Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Harvard Pilgrim, and Tufts Health Plan, many of whom, or all of whom, have provided national leadership. Think about Blue Cross Blue Shield and their launch of the alternative quality contract many years ago, uh, recently published in the New England Journal, uh, that demonstrated you can improve quality and lower costs, roughly almost by 12 percent, uh, which is kind of the sweet spot, I'd say, that we all want to be in. I would say Harvard Pilgrim has done some interesting things in the um, uh, – it's very complicated to talk about the PBM, the pharmacy benefits management world, and Tufts, I'll say, in the governmental payer space. Uh, so really great c- commercial health plans uh, in, this, in this market. Uh, and, of course, being chased by the nationals who are coming in somewhat aggressively. You know, Commercial plans are not always viewed in the most positive light. I take a very different uh, perspective about it. I think they have brought creativity to the, to the table. The biggest problem for us uh, in eastern Massachusetts is that the prices are just too high in the hospitals in particular. Well, let, me, and, let me focus you there then, because at the recent cost trends hearings, you did make some comments suggesting that our state legislature perhaps ought to more directly regulate provider prices. I assume that you meant hospital provider, but you can explain to us. What did you mean by all of that? Uh. Yeah, so one of the problems that we have and the blessings at the same time is we have these world-class quaternary academic medical centers, uh, and they are very, very attractive to patients, but they're much more expensive than community hospitals. So we're seeing the community hospitals in some ways suffer from patients driving right past them to go into the big academic medical centers. That causes a a lot of pressure on their uh, finances. Uh, So they can't reinvest in their infrastructure and technology as other academic medical centers do. And by virtue of the fact that the academic medical centers are so expensive and they're great, they drive up the price. Mm -hmm. And that puts just extraordinary pressure on value-based care providers like Atrius Health, where we're trying to find ways to economize. And year over year, our health, our health status adjusted uh, costs have been going down in the commercial through the three large commercial plans. But the prices keep going up. And ultimately, your financial arrangements, since you have to pay those prices, uh, impact your organization, I take it. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very directly. So uh, the model that we were very intrigued by that was presented by Chris Kohler and uh, Dr. Ganim at uh, – the Health Policy Commission hearings, were the, was the Rhode Island uh, experience in making an investment in primary care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that was structured, there was a requirement, so this is a regulated requirement, that there be an increased reimbursement to primary care by 1% per year over five years and a 1% over CPI cap uh, to the hospitals. And that combination 
saved Rhode Island, small Rhode Island, $80 million. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not, it wouldn't be a surprise to me that that influenced the governor's proposed uh, budget where he's recommended a, a 10% per year increase over three years into primary care and behavioral health. So to me, it's often a mistake people say regulate in regulation and, uh, and in the same breath say that's a terrible thing. You know, we, we should have no regulation. But in truth, all of healthcare has been regulated for decades. Um, often the structure is set up by Medicare, which lays out diagnostic-related groups or other episode of care. All the creative kind of reimbursement models from CMMI, those are regulated entities uh, for us if we are sincere about trying to control the total cost of care. As it relates to the consumers in, in the Commonwealth, we all have to lean in a little bit. Uh, and I believe the plans would lean in. I think the health systems want to lean in. I think they need a mechanism to find a way to, to clear to do that. And obviously, we as a, as a provider would, would lean in as well. So just to give a little background for our listeners who may not be completely up to speed on this. So the nation, the United States, has been on this drive to move away from fee-for-service payment for medical services, which incentivizes just doing as much as possible toward what has different names but mostly value-based payment, where you pay for efficiency, quality, effectiveness. Things like accountable care organizations or ACOs, bundled payment, other kinds of interventions in the public space at the federal government, in the state, and among commercial payers um, is going on, but at varying rates all around the country. And I think it's fair to say Massachusetts is probably one of the most advanced states in terms of that transformation from fee-for-service to value-based payment. And apparently Atrius is one of the most advanced in Massachusetts in terms of just diving headfirst into the global payment, value-based payment pool. How do you see this? I mean, the results nationally are not head-turning. The the returns in terms of ACOs and bundled payment and other kinds of things, marginal improvements in quality, maybe some marginal savings, but nothing to write home about. But here in Massachusetts, we are far along. How do you see the movement and the revolution broadly and in terms of Atrius? What I really like about Massachusetts is that it has led the country in universal access. And I would like to believe that most of us are very supportive of universal access. And the form of reimbursement in that universal access can be many flavors, um, but we are all in for universal access. We believe in global budgets because we believe it creates alignment. You need a certain number of tools to make that work. And we've made those investments in population health and the like. And I would argue that the reason it's gone slowly everywhere else is that the best alternative to change is the status quo. And in healthcare, in particular, there are very powerful forces to maintain the status quo, which represents around 18% of the gross domestic product. Uh, And so no one wants to just jump in. They want to guarantee. And what CMMI, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Improvement, has been experimenting with is upside incentives only to kind of pull people along until they have enough confidence that they can generate sufficient margins in the value-based world as compared to a FIFA service world. So this, it's not a surprise that it's slow. 
Uh, I think the other uh, reason it's been delayed is this PPO reimbursement model. And that is a traditional fee-for-service model. Of course, you have these large national companies that it's very hard for them to set up a, a limited network or a managed network in any given state. So it's just easier to have a PPO design. And the PPO designs are the structures for high-deductible health plans where employers are shifting more cost of health care to employees. Until there is adoption, I would argue, of the very creative model that Blue Cross Blue Shield has put on the table of a global payment adjusted for things like quality, risk, uh, uh, it's going to continue to go slowly. It's going to require leadership, I would uh, argue, from CMMI or some other national who's willing to take this on. Otherwise, we're going to still be doing what we've been doing for the past decade or so, even though there's compelling evidence that we can reduce total cost of care, improve access to care, uh, and uh, arguably improve the quality of the care. Uh, and we're so much more expensive than so many other countries in the world. We, we know that it's possible. Um, it's kind of like Churchill said what the Americans will do. You know, they'll, I may not get this exactly right, but the Americans will eventually do the right thing after they've tried everything else. So we need to find a way to move the needle more towards value-based care more aggressively the benefits will accrue to the, the, the economy because we're trading off investments in infrastructure and education and other social programs in order to continue to fund healthcare. So one of the big players in this now over the past couple of years is the Medicaid program in Massachusetts known as MassHealth. In the spring of 2018, they moved about 850,000 people into 17 new accountable care organizations just for the mass health population, and you're one of those 17 plans. How's it going? What are you experiencing? What are you seeing both with Atrius and with these other seven, 16 ACOs? What I have to first say is how much credit the Executive Office of Health and Human Services deserves for moving the Commonwealth in this direction. Uh, the model of care allows the Commonwealth to get uh, incremental funding from the federal government to front-load investments that will help with population health. And we really endorse and support that model of care. We are obviously all in for population health management. Uh, for us, we have had um, more members than we had planned on. So it, uh, we, we started out with about 23,000. We quickly went to 28. We're now at about 32,000. So it went a little faster than we, when we planned. Um, and what may or may not be clear to everybody uh, is that the way most, uh, uh, most providers support uh, Medicaid and Medicaid services, actually in some regard Medicare as well, is through the commercial rates. Those commercial rates subsidize um, some of the other governmental pay payments, uh, which typically don't cover their full cost. So it's been a little challenging. I'd say we're at the very, very beginning of the model. We believe there's a lot of expense savings opportunities, much as I described for population health. Uh, and so we have a little ways to go. We, we Atrius Health, have traditionally had about 7% uh, savings below the market for that Medicaid population. Mm -hmm. And what about the rest of the experiment? How do you see it going? I'm not sure the data is out. I'd say no, it's, it's coming out next month. Or yeah, first. it's just yeah. too soon to say. Yeah. Okay. Steve, we're sitting here a few days before Thanksgiving. Legislature, I think, has, has taken a, a break. Uh, but so far this fall, uh, we've heard, obviously, you mentioned it, the governor's proposal about legislation in the Senate a few weeks ago passed uh, 
its uh, initial approach to try to reduce pharmaceutical spending, and they're talking next on the Senate side perhaps of uh, mental health uh, legislation. But, you know, broadly, whether it's those topics or others, what would you like to see happen in this legislative uh, year? So I would first start out by saying how fortunate the Commonwealth is to have um, such creative um, ideas coming out of the governor's office and the Health and Human Services office. So my hat is off to them. Um, I, our, I would start by um, underscoring the investment in primary care and behavioral health. Uh, you know, def definitely mirroring the experience in Rhode Island. What a great return that would provide to the Commonwealth. Just on that, they, they double primary care in Rhode Island, and the governor's proposal at this point is a 30% increase of behavioral health and primary care. Is that enough? Or, uh... It's a great question. I don't think we know. Uh, in other states where they've made investments in primary care, it has had a return, but it's a limited number of states that, that have made those uh, commitments. But I think it's a step, step in the right direction. Generally, in the ACO world of Pioneer and NextGen, those organizations that are run by providers, typically rich in primary care, have outperformed hospital-based systems, mm -hmm. outperformed hospital-based ACOs. So I would say the investment in primary care and behavioral health makes a ton of sense. We are well undersupplied in behavioral health, as most people in the Commonwealth know. I would say there's a big bucket of uh, what benefits consumers. So things that improve access um, think about uh, allowing top of license for nurse practitioners, clinical pharmacists, uh, non other non-licensed personnel. I think that would be enormously helpful. Uh, I think taking on drug pricing is going to be extremely important, whether that's in mass health or elsewhere, really just um, one of the big core drivers uh, of, of cost. Um, uh, it's hard to argue against the deployment of telehealth and telemedicine. At Atrius Health, we've just had a spectacular experience with just tip of the iceberg teledermatology. Uh, but you could envision where in urgent care settings and in a whole host of chronic conditions where patients are no longer mobile, where you could do that monitoring remotely, help them and give them the kind of access and care that, that they need. So telehealth, uh, I would say, is another really important part uh, of the of the governor's uh, proposal, um, you didn't say anything about out of network facility fee issues. Well, yes, the parts that I, I would say there should be no surprise billing. Uh, um, that's a complicated matter in in some regard as it relates to the way certain medical specialties have designed their reimbursement models. Uh, but they're really it, it's totally unacceptable, and we certainly protect our patients from those out of, uh, out of unexpected bills and that we believe that's the right thing to do. And it should globally apply. Uh, and there are ways of, of, of doing that. Um, I, I may be leaving out one or two other things because there were so many great ideas uh, in the uh, governor's proposal, uh, you know, subjecting the pharmaceutical manufacturers that have very high rates of inflation to review and having the, the PBMs participate in Health Policy Commission shining a light on them, uh, I think all makes a tremendous amount of sense. And then the, the, you know, all the proposals around parity for behavioral health to try and get behavioral health care to be a non-cash out-of-pocket kind of program and have it really be covered inside the envelope of insurance just makes a ton of sense to me. So the big conversation nationally is around Medicare for All. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, others. 
How do you look at that? Have you looked at that? Have you studied? Have you thought about the impact it could have on Atrius? And where do you see this conversation going, if anywhere? I was so hoping to stay out of the presidential debate. Um, uh, I, I would have to say that Medicare for All is a wonderful soundbite. Uh, most people who are not in Medicare think that means free health care. Anybody who's on Medicare realizes that it's like any other insurance product. It's a coverage benefit. It still costs money. Uh, what Medicare for All does not do is tell you about the reimbursement model. So here we are talking about global budgeting. We are in a global budget through our next-gen contract, but most people in Medicare are on a fee-for-service kind of non-value-based, um, one could argue, churning kind of reimbursement model. So coverage is where I uh, uh, fall. I would say we should work hard to have universal coverage, and then we need to design the model of reimbursement. Uh, it's a beginning uh, to say Medicare for All as it relates to the journey of universal coverage, not too dissimilar from the uh, Affordable Care Act, which tried to get us more expanded coverage for Medicaid in, in the states. So just summing up, what, what's the future of Atrius that you see over the next several years? What should we expect or anticipate? My board would say uh, it will, we will be spectacularly successful from the perspective of supporting the communities where we are based, helping consumers have a better experience, lowering the total cost of care, and providing services wherever they're needed. Steve Strongwater, CEO of Atrius Health, Thanks very much for being our guest today. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, John, this is now our opportunity to reflect a bit about our interview with uh, Dr. Strongwater. I'll, I'll get started. It, it's certainly, you know, in a uh, especially Eastern Massachusetts perspective where our provider systems we tend to think about are all very much uh, hospital-focused. Here's somebody leading up uh, the largest independent physician group uh, not owning a hospital and in a comprehensive and thoughtful way, I thought we heard a lot of interesting things from Steve Strongwater about uh, what the world looks like as, as a physician group trying to operate in, in, you know, in this uh, market that we live. Any thoughts that you yeah, had? A couple of things struck me. One is that they are on the cutting edge in terms of moving away from fee-for-service and toward value-based payment. Over 80% of their revenue, so they're not the only one, but they're one of the leading ones, and they seem quite comfortable in that space. And I guess the other thing that strikes me was just the strongly uh, positive tone. You know, I'm, I'm used to sitting and interviewing and talking with people from the medical sector a lot from different angles and getting usually a litany of concerns, worries, complaints, problems. And this is a different kind of uh, tone that I actually hear from other folks around the state of being positive about the direction that the state's going in, uh, in, in commercial insurance, in Medicaid, and so forth, uh, and wanting to keep this going and, and, and accelerate and, die and, and, and go into it more deeply. I, I, I agree with you, your, your observation about him. Uh, although he, he likes to say positive things and did, he in a very somewhat delicate but direct way also said that uh, he does think that as much as he likes what the governor has proposed, that somehow the legislature needs to get a little bit more assertive in uh, perhaps regulating at some level or in some way provider prices. And he did say that. I know that uh, that's not often a common thing you hear 
from any provider groups, but uh, Dr. Strogwater uh, has shared that at the HPC hearings, and he shared it again today. I agree. It's it's interesting to see uh, Atrius Health emerge as a significant and strong voice in this arena, and that's something I think to keep an eye on. Fair enough. Well, we'll thank our audience, and we'll look forward to being back with you next month. Thank you.